Welcome to episode 169 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Our guest interview today uh, was actually uh, recorded at the end of last week uh, when I sat down with Ben Buchanan, who's a fellow at the Cybersecurity Project at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Uh, we'll be talking about his recent book on the cybersecurity dilemma. For the News Roundup, I'm joined today by Ben Wittes, uh, the Senior Fellow and Research Director in Public Law at the Brookings Institution. That that has nothing to do with your job, Ben. <laughs> I, I don't make the rules, man. <laughs> uh, also by Maury Schenk, uh, who's our uh, uh, former all-everything in our London office and now a um, advisor on law and technology uh, to numerous European startups. Uh, he's on the board. He invests in uh, startup uh, technology companies. Uh, welcome, Maury. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, and by Brian Egan, uh, a new Steptoe partner uh, in international regulation, uh, who was previously the legal advisor to the State Department. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to practice law at Steptoe more times than any other lawyer. Uh, let's get started. Well, you can't begin uh, this week's uh, podcast without talking at least a little about Jim Comey and Donald Trump. Um, a, although I'm, I think the cyber law connection is a little hard to find. Uh, uh, ben, you've, you've uh, had a lot generally favorable to say about Jim Comey. Uh, let me say something unfavorable. Um, his release of that memo kind of through intermediaries, um, was in a long and really unattractive uh, tradition at the FBI of leaking stuff to serve what they consider their institutional interests or maybe the interests of justice. Uh, that goes back to Mark Felt, uh, who who leaked in the name of justice and uh, overturned a president so that he could become head of the FBI and never got to be head of the FBI. Uh, uh, is there really a good defense for his releasing that information in order to spur a special counsel? So, first of all, I actually disagree with your premise. I think the um, the what Comey did is not remotely in the tradition of Mark Felt or uh, uh, Louis Free or uh, uh, you could you, – I agree with you. There is a very long tradition. There is zero tradition of then going up in and your next it. congressional <laughs> testimony and volunteering precisely what you did unbidden – by, um, you know, not compelled. Uh, Mark Felt uh, was nearly dead by the time uh, he conceded uh, his role. He had forgotten everything he did when he admitted it. Exactly. Um, and, um, and, you know, I think the – so I think it's actually really worth thinking about what Comey did in a different context, which is the context of simple whistleblowing. And this is a situation where I actually think the right frame to understand it is, did he behave the way we would want a whistleblower to behave? And at least speaking personally – when I think about how I want whistleblowers to behave, I want them to go through channels with respect to classified material and not blow classified programs. Well, he kept all the classified material right. in, in closed session. Uh, I want them not to uh, 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 go public while there are still available uh, alternatives within the, the system. Uh, you know, he kept this stuff uh, quiet until the point at which the president had summarily fired him and started lying about it in public. And I want whistleblowers, when they know of egregiously bad conduct that is not classified and not investigative sensitive, to do things like uh, call a friend and say, hey, can you get this to the New York Times for me? Uh, and so I actually uh, 
I actually think it, it I think you're you're framing it in in terms of what uh you know the normal FBI practice in while in government of uh being inconvenient through leaks to uh to the political leadership is actually a pretty bad description of what happened here. So I I will say this and Brian jump in. I I used to say that the best example of the importance of being a good writer was Henry Kissinger in government. Uh, uh, Because if you read his early stuff, it's unreadable. It's just this Teutonic mash of nouns. Good use of Teutonic. (laughs) (laughs) And and then he he becomes a graceful, muscular, effective writer. but Jim Comey has taken it to a new level. We will never I – mean, even if it isn't true, that moment where he is staring into Donald Trump's eyes, neither of them speaking, or the crowd of people around the door by the grandfather clock. We will never get those uh, 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 visions out of our head. Uh, and it's clear he uh, he has made being a good evocative writer – part of what makes him effective as a player in Washington. By the way, that's not merely true of the current situation. I mean, I so, you know, he's written for Lawfare a couple times while he was in office. And, uh, you know, those are really well-written posts. And they they required, you know, I, I don't usually talk about how people are to edit. They required very little editing. Um, and, you know, I... I have every reason to believe he wrote and drafted them himself. They, oh, you know, they, he, he's got a style that's very clear. And so I, you know, I actually think it's a, um, you know, your your point is not uh, limited to this instance. But the other thing he is, you know, is a very effective presenter. And you know, I I think he, you know, he went up there having released the substance of what he was going to say, which normally when, when you do that, you do it at the risk of scooping yourself and then sort of taking all the wind out of the sails. And the, the hearing was pretty riveting anyway. Yeah, Jim, um, Jimmy Stewart goes to a knife fight. <laughs> <laughs> so Brian, I, 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 thoughts on any of that? <laughs> I, one legal question that's gotten a little bit of play is how do you think about Comey under the Federal Records Act, his notes under the Federal Records Act. Oh, clearly he's violated that. that he's violated yeah. the FBI rules on how to, uh, you know, all those de- those those uh, memos were produced on FBI materials. They belong to the FBI. He's supposed to go through pre-pub review when he releases that. I, it, that's not crime, but it's a violation. I, it's, it's certainly not a crime, and I think it's it's for those of us who are records geeks, it's a very interesting question about how you think about one's personal notes that are contemporaneously recording what's going on in your agency as work records, agency records, or personal records. The National Archives uh, says this category is the most difficult to distinguish between personal and agency records because of the work-related content of personal notes. So I think if you, you know, I I used to have, lots of people took notes in little books that they took to meetings. I would say that's a hard question, uh, and mostly resolved by who has the damn books. Uh, uh, but when you type up notes uh, and print them out and send them around, I think he did this uh, uh, inside the organization. Then that, that's mm-hmm. that's an organization record. Well, it? but 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 hang on a second. So I, I, I look, I have no, I've never worked for a federal agency, and I actually don't have a strong opinion about this question, but. Um, it seemed to me that if the president wanted an orderly separation of Jim Comey from, from agency material, the proper way to do it was not to fire him while he was on, in California and, <laughs> and then, uh, not allow him access to his office, right? And oh, did they? Did, is that right? They, I, did, they, I believe. Uh, I, I forget. He didn't even get the traditional cardboard box. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't know what he got. Yeah. But um, you know, I I I think that is not a way to uh, to uh, effectuate a, a, a reasonable separation in which you get to decide what is mine and what is thine, and if if 
Comey took away from that that, well, hey, all the the unclassified stuff that I'm left in possession with uh, is mine to do what I want with. I'm not sure the government later gets to come in and say, you know, wait a minute, you know, all of those are agency records. (laughs) Well, it's a technical violation. Right. Look, there might be a Privacy Act violation. It's a, it's a government record about about an individual, uh, one Donald Trump. So, so, so I would I would say, look, if if this is the ground that the Trump administration wants to fight this question on, that's really really bad ground for them because there is because. If you're, if, if the definition of leak for purposes of Jim Comey engaged in an outrageous leak here is the sort of thing that uh, a lot of cabinet secretaries have done in, um, in, in, in writing in memoirs, books, yes. in memoirs, in subsequent congressional testimonies, in 60 minutes interviews, uh, this is just not, it's not going to have legs in the long run and repeating it 300 times is not going to make it have legs. At, at least, at least when the Bill Clinton people were insisting that Ken Starr was leaking grand jury information, which was uh, by and large entirely untrue, um, at least there were these leaks that had shown up in, right. in, in the paper about stuff that was going on in front of the grand jury. All right. Well, let's let's. Move on to the other, uh, uh, topics of the week. There you know, are we, there. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say, you know, this was, I was less entranced by this than, uh, um, most folks. Uh, uh, maybe because I don't think there is a collusion. I, I just don't see it, uh, uh, between the, the, leadership of the Trump campaign and the Russians, and I would prefer that we focus on hitting the Russians instead of hitting our favorite domestic targets. But uh, speaking of stuff that uh, where, again, uh, we seem to be fighting more of a partisan than, an inter- uh, than a national security battle, 702, 702, it looks as though we now know what the uh, the battle lines are going to be. Uh, and how would you describe them? I would say, I mean, Tom Bossert went to the New York Times and uh, said, we want a clean, not just a clean reauthorization, we want a reauthorization that makes 702 permanent. Uh, and don't mess with it. Um, and he got uh, all the Republicans on the Intelligence Committee to back him on that. Uh, so that's clearly one position that's going to come in and have some... Uh, significant support. And then on the other side, I guess I would put Diane Feinstein has, um, who is by and large a friend of the intelligence community and certainly a friend of the FBI, who has said, uh, well, wait a minute, maybe we ought to do some things. Uh, and the kinds of things that she has proposed are things like taking the NSA decision not to collect about communications anymore uh, and writing into law, uh, uh, maybe addressing uh, some additional transparency issues. Uh, um, that doesn't strike me as a very big gap. Now, maybe we haven't heard from, we certainly haven't heard from the right, uh, the kind of crazy right that uh, Justin Amash symbolizes, uh, uh, who will want to do something on cyber, on um, civil liberties, uh, or the crazy left that Ron Wyden symbolizes on this stuff. Uh, they'll have more, but I'm not sure they have enough votes to, uh, to change the, the, the debate. Well, so this is an issue in which there is essentially no substantive daylight between the two of us. Um, but I think you're being optimistic. I always on, am on this on, stuff. On, yes. on, a, on, on the political side. Um, I think this is going to be a ugly mess, and it's going to blow up in a big way. Uh, right around it, Christmas, right? Well, it'll it'll blow up before then because if we if we've gotten to Christmas without without there being very clear that there's going to be legislation, uh, you will already be in 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 a very bad place. But I think you know starting in September, it's going to get very ugly. And so let me give you 
uh, I, I was I'm going to say five. It may not quite be five reasons why the parameters of the debate are actually uh, wider mm-hmm. than than you than you've just described. So the first is that uh, Donald Trump and Devin Nunes have collectively uh, instilled a left-like paranoid fear of uh, FISA in general in a very large swath of the right. And it used to be a very narrow swath of the right, right. C- characterized by, by De- uh, Justin Amash, that had this uh, set of anxieties, and Rand Paul. It's no longer narrow. And, you know, the people who are yapping about incidental collection and, uh, you know, unmasking are every time they do it, making reauthorization of 702 more difficult. That's reason number one. Reason number two, uh, don't underestimate the left on this. They made the USA Freedom Act hell to pass. Uh, and this is a bigger program. It's more important. And that means that the stakes are higher and they're the, the ability to gouge concessions by holding things up is greater. Right um, number three, uh, don't underestimate political dysfunction in general. We're, we're talking about a major piece of legislation in a Congress that cannot pass minor pieces of legislation. Uh, and then uh, fourth, uh, don't underestimate the continued uh, impact of insane tweets by the president about <laughs> uh, ongoing legislative matters. And the president's position appears to be, and I really feel for Bossert in this, who seems like a, a decent, serious man. Um, but the White House's position is there's all sorts of abuse of FISA um, by the intelligence community and my predecessor uh and please reauthorize it permanently on a on a, 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 a you know on a on a clean basis without without any new controls right without any new controls <laughs> and that is a simply indefensible position now i don't know whether the right answer to that is i, I assume the right answer to that question is well, since you're lying about the abuses, I'm comfortable. But I'm comfortable with the reauthorization. I, I, I think that's the answer. But um, that's a pretty tough sell, and it's going to get tougher the more, uh, you know, the more the president uh, engages the subject, and the more he goes after. Um, uh, Bob Mueller, which I assume that's next, having, huh? having gotten rid of Comey, that's the next thing. And then there's one other element that I think is, uh, so this brings me to five, that's going to make the politics complicated. And it's that there's nobody to quarterback this. Um, the, uh, you know, Bossert is uh, not a high profile enough figure. He's not an agency head. In 2007, 2008, uh, we had McConnell and we had Ben Powell, and they did incredible work um, to, in very difficult conditions, to get this done. Well, and Bob Litt, and uh, I was going to say, in, 2000, in 2012, post Snowden, we had Bob Litt. Uh, and, um, you know, there has to be somebody who was going to carry the ball, right? Now, who was that person? It's not Dan Coates. I'm, I'm sorry, he's, you know, he seems like a, a nice man. But he just doesn't have the stature, uh, and and um, the obvious person to do that was fired summarily by the president. Um, and so I look at those five things together, and I say I don't see how this comes together in a in quite the smooth way that you're describing. Okay, Brian, I um, everything Ben said makes sense, but. I do think that what NSA did a couple of weeks ago in disowning the about is a big deal for those who follow this. And um, maybe the answer will be what Senator Feinstein proposed in putting that into legislation. I, I hate to do that because they, they gave up about not because it wasn't productive. It was productive, but because it was producing too much political hassle. So we're basically saying, OK, now we're going to enshrine the rule that if it's too much political hassle. It doesn't matter that it's good intelligence. We're going to ban it. And uh, I, I, I have not given up the hope that um, with proper technical advances, they could do about again. Uh, and uh, I'd like them to see them do it. But 
my 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 goal to appease the right is to have a massive reform of unmasking practices. Uh, just just be hard as hell on unmasking because you know it's not that important and it doesn't really change the intelligence you gather. And if you've got a good reason to unmask, you'll still get to unmask. But if you have to uh, record your name in blood in a, a book that is uh, immutably uh, uh, stored in six different places uh, uh, under uh, uh, Cheyenne Mountain, fine. I mm-hmm. uh, uh, but I and and that I'm I'm hoping will make the folks on the right feel that they got their uh, you know pound of flesh. Stuart, I'm shocked, outraged, and appalled to hear you describing uh, the need for preemptive reforms of authorities that we have no evidence were abused. And I, and I so seldom get the opportunity to outflank you from the right that I'm, that I'm just going to take this one since you served it to me on a silver platter and say no – you know, if you want to, if, if somebody wants to show that there was, I feel the same way about about collection. You want to show it was abused, we can, we can, we can reform it. Or, uh, uh, you know, you want to show that unmasking was was there was improper unmasking. Okay, then I'll do it. Otherwise, we, you know, our intelligence community needs flexibility. It needs agility, and you of all people oh. should know that. Oh, it hurts. All right. Yes. Uh, touche. Uh, uh, that's at least a pound of flesh. <laughs> okay. Um, let's shift continents. Uh, there's been an election in the United Kingdom, and it did not turn out as, as everybody expected. Uh, it turns out that uh, the United Kingdom has decided to delegate uh, uh, large chunks of its policy to the uh, uh, Ulster Protestants, uh, uh, who are going to provide the margin of victory in the House of Commons. Uh, um, uh, Maury, uh, uh, what does the, uh, what's the Ulster view on, uh, regulating uh, encryption and, uh, and technology uh, for national security purposes? Well, this election has created a lot of turmoil here, but I don't think it's, uh, Prefage is much upset for the technology industry. Now, the Tories have a plank in their platform entitled a modern industrial strategy, and UK law has been really good. This is a community that I'm deeply involved in, in, in helping the tech community here. There's great tax incentives for angel investment. The government uh, provides funds for private investment funds that are privately managed to invest in tech, and the Tories support that. And the DUP... Uh, which they are now going into a sort of undefined coalition with, also has in their platform a section called Creating a Globally Competitive Economy, and they talk about industrial strategy. So I think, you know, post-Brexit, Brexit will probably hit the U.K. financial sector, TBD, how much? But for the tech sector, which is a place where we have been leading in Europe, um, that shouldn't be affected as much, and probably a freed of... Uh, being too closely tied to the EU will mean less regulation here. So I don't think this is a bad thing for the tech sector, but having Ian Paisley's party in government is upsetting to a lot of people here for other reasons. Yeah, um, but at the end of the day, they're going to care about um, local politics, and I'm sure they'll, they'll get to write their ticket in um, uh, in Ireland and what they think um Brexit means for the Irish border is probably going to prevail uh, because that's uh, uh, an issue on which they can walk if they don't like the the result. Yeah, I, I think they'll they'll be influential perhaps on Irish policy, but that's one of the things that people is really are really worried about here. You know, we also have representatives uh, representatives in the Westminster Parliament from Sinn Fein who are talking about not even taking their seat and. Uh, we don't want to go backwards on the m- massive improvement in uh, stability in Northern Ireland. So I don't think there will be uh, kowtowing by the national government to the DUP on Irish issues. Okay. Um, so you followed, and I think Brian has followed, the uh, remarkable events surrounding Qatar 
uh, in the last week, which seemed to be a sudden and massive um, embargo on trade by uh, uh, the rest of the Gulf, uh, putting aside Iran, uh, and um, uh, and then a decision on the part of the Qatar government uh, and their news agency to blame the whole thing on a, uh, a hack of their uh, news agency that produced a whole bunch of literally fake news. Um, what's going on? Well, it's a little bit hard to tell, but both the FBI and the National Crime Agency in Britain have confirmed that it does appear to be hacking. It does appear to be Russian-associated hacking, but not government interests. And there's rumors that the same states that have embargoed uh, Qatar, Saudi, and UAE might have been behind the hacking. They have long-standing disputes with Qatar's independent foreign policy, and in particular with the independence of the Al Jazeera news agency, which is based out of Doha in Qatar. It's a really significant embargo. We have friends there, and you know the land border is closed. Um, there's talk of airlifting in supplies from Iran. Um, and the timing is a little bit odd after Donald Trump was just... Uh, making friends with the Saudis. I don't think anybody is suggesting that Trump is behind the hack or associated with it, but uh, it, it wasn't that helpful when um, Tillerson made supportive comments for Qatar, given, for example, that we have our largest Middle Eastern military base there, and Trump then accused Qatar of supporting terrorism, sort of playing to the Saudi position. So it is an extremely confused uh situation at a rather serious embargo for the people there. So, Brian, this puts um, Tillerson in an awkward spot. The president is tweeting that uh, um, he heard a lot about problems with Qatar's support for terrorism and and rumors that they may have provided a billion dollars in uh, um, uh, ransom to ISIS uh, to get some uh, uh, Qatari... uh, uh, nationals back. Um, where does this end up, and how significant is the hack in driving it? Well, I think it's uh, it's really raised a bar for our own fake news stories here in the United States. He, the New York Times summarized the the report on the Qatari news site as uh, quoting the Emir of Qatar as describing tensions with President Trump speculating that he may not last in office, this is the Emir of Qatar, uh, recommending friendship with Iran, and then attesting to his own good relations with Israel. So uh, yeah, kind of a trifecta. <laughs> it was really, really stunning. And I think we've got to do a better job here with our fake news sites and drumming up some pretty sensational stuff. We're, we're gonna, that, that, that is a high bar indeed. <laughs> uh, but I think at, for, for the State Department, as, as with so many of these issues, uh, getting into the to the embassies on the ground, re, uh, sending messages of reassurance while not saying anything that leads to the next target for the administration to to take a big swing at is is the name of the game and and I know state is trying to do that right now yeah that's uh, this is this is going to be tricky uh, i i assume one good reason to have uh, the British and uh, um, FBI uh, uh, investigators there is so that they have an attribution that uh, um, isn't likely to be challenged elsewhere in the Gulf. Uh, certainly you'd hope that our FBI still adds some legitimacy to uh, to those types of investigations. Uh, well, let's, let's just wait for the, uh, you know, the definitive leak on that question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so you know, we thought similar. We saw something similar in Syria with the gas attacks where Assad was saying, well, come in, international authorities, and investigate because there has been some fake news about what has happened here, too. I think we, you know, it's, it's tried to get international opinion on the side. One other comment about what I think is really interesting here is I think this is what cyber war looks like. You know, a few years ago, we thought cyber war was going to be about sabotage using online systems, but... The Russians in particular have turned out to be very good at a different kind of cyber war. Yeah, you know, I, I completely agree with you because this was, this was apparently a piece of cake to hack. Uh, uh, these guys had no defenses to speak of. Uh, uh, and so the, the real genius here was in figuring out how to shape the message to, to, to split the gulf on a fracture line that already existed. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yep. we, I, increasingly it looks 
as you know, maybe this will change, but right now cyber weapons look like uh, uh, two weeks of um, remarkable effect, uh, and you shouldn't expect more than two weeks of uh, of benefit from them uh, uh, because then people figure out what happened and they start getting the story out. Uh, maybe they improve their defenses, uh, uh, but those two weeks in this world uh, can make a big difference. All right, uh, two uh, additional uh, uh, stories just to wrap up. China, uh, with its new cybersecurity law in effect, already has a, uh, a target for uh, uh, violations of uh, personally identifiable information. And wow, what a surprise. It turns out to be a Western tech company that they don't like, Apple, uh, that they are going after because Apple's uh, had several employees who were apparently selling personal data. Uh, meanwhile, there's another, uh, report, uh, out about a Chinese, native Chinese company, Rafotech, which has installed spyware on 250 million machines around the world. Uh, no suggestion that there's going to be an investigation there because the, a lot of the machines are outside of China. Uh, they use this spyware in order to basically force people to use uh, their uh, browser and their uh, search engines, uh, uh, but they are also um, in a position to pretty much add arbitrary code to all 250 million machines. Uh, I, and as far as I can see, nobody's investigating them, but uh, those 22 Apple employees who uh, did the wrong thing are going to make Apple pay a, <laughs> a, a heavy price, is my guess. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. There's been a lot of ink spilled on the GDPR, the new EU law that's coming out next year that's going to require notification of data breaches. Uh, not as much has been said about the the aspects of the new Chinese cyber law on this same topic, I personally think it's because we can't really figure out what this law means. It's so very right. unclear. Um, That's right. Not really different from GDPR, but it you you think you know what GDPR means. It, in fact, it means you're guilty. Uh, <laughs> we'll figure out the fine later. Uh, and and the notification requirements here uh, that the, the the Chinese are apparently focused on um, are uh, in some sense similar to what you might look for under GDPR. So this uh, on uh, data breach, data no- notification, working with authorities. This is not something we've talked about so much in the context of the new Chinese law, um, but this is going to be an interesting first uh, first case. Yeah, this is really business as usual in China. You know, Apple was previously the victim of people setting up fake Apple stores. One of the big Chinese browser companies, Chihu 360, a year or so ago, was found to be whitelisting malware. Um, and I think you're right, Stuart, to point out that look who it is who got prosecuted and... Um, and as Brian was saying, the cybersecurity law is extremely vague to allow this kind of discretion. So um, nothing is really changing in China. I, I suspect we'll continue to see more of the same, notwithstanding this new law. Well, I'm going to I'm giving remarks at the Irish government's data summit uh, on Thursday, uh, and uh, I intend to talk a little bit about this. These guys have spent all their time and effort uh, um, complaining about the sliver of difference between human rights law and uh, uh, the um, European Union and the United States and threatening to cut off uh, data exports for 20 years. Um, and in the meantime, uh, there are hundreds of millions of machines, many of them in Europe, sending data back to, uh, uh, to China, and nobody has asked uh, gee, do you think that those data exports might violate European law? Uh, I think it's time for Europe to wake up and, and focus its uh, human rights uh, um, uh, fire on somebody that uh, actually deserves it. So, uh, last question, last last topic I wanted to cover. Uh, the Ukraine has imposed sanctions uh, of an unusual sort. Uh, basically, they took all of the social media in Ukraine, which tend to be all Russian, uh, Mail.ru and Vcontact uh, and the like, uh, and said, we're sanctioning them all. Uh, we're going to cut them off uh, from access to the Ukrainian market. Uh, and remarkably, a bunch of human rights groups said, Oh, you can't do that. I mean, I, 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 that's a First Amendment violation. Uh, uh, I was a little surprised to see that much, um, 
hostility to the Ukraine move, although I certainly see how it could have um, free expression implications. Yeah, it's, you know, under our system, the, the law that gives the president very broad authorities to impose sanctions, the IEPA, the International mm-hmm. Emergency Economic Powers Act, actually has a carve out that uh, prohibits the president from imposing sanctions on information and information materials. The law was passed well before these websites were, social media sites were a thing. Um, but you can see, at least in our system, I, it's, it's hard to see uh, us imposing sanctions on social media sites that would require the taking down of sites. Um, difficult to see how that kind of... Uh, uh, more plays in Ukraine, but you have seen human rights groups, including Ukraine, saying uh, this doesn't make much sense. Yep. All right. Our interview today is with Ben Buchanan. Ben has written a book called The Cybersecurity Dilemma, Hacking Trust and Fear Between Nations. Uh, uh, anytime you can get hacking and fear uh, into a, a book on cybersecurity, you're, uh, you're bound to be in the right place. Uh, um, a, ben is a postdoc fellow at Harvard uh, at the Belfer Center uh, uh, after uh, uh, getting his PhD in England at, uh, in King's College. Uh, and um, I will say, Ben, your book does feel a little academic, right? It, 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 your, your, your background shows. Uh, uh, but why don't I ask you to tell me what you mean by the cybersecurity dilemma? Because I think you, um, you have a very particular idea of what the cybersecurity dilemma is. I'll give you a minute. Well, I, I do plead guilty uh, to the charge of being an academic, at least right now. I don't know if that qualifies as temporary insanity or not, but I do plead guilty to that charge. Uh, I think what's interesting to me about the security dilemma, which is indeed an academic idea, is it's this notion that a nation, um, even as it protects itself with genuinely defensive actions, can threaten another, another nation and can cause escalation or raise tensions. And this goes back, in one fashion or another, to the Greek historian Thucydides, um, who wrote that it was the rise of Athens and the fear that that inspired in Sparta that made the Peloponnesian War inevitable. Um, So what I was thinking about is, as we approach cybersecurity, a landscape in which there's a lot of new and different things, what old ideas can we use and can we apply here as a scaffolding for getting into um, this new territory? So the book very much is about cybersecurity, but the goal was to take some time-tested and proven ideas and use that to consider um, what the most important trees are in cybersecurity and how that can best help us understand the forest. So I, uh, let me let me start by jumping in a completely different direction because it seems to me that a logical and, in fact, academic corollary to the security dilemma uh, where uh, defensive preparations threaten your adversaries is the notion that uh, weakness is a form of aggression or at least a form of inviting conflict, uh, uh, that uh, uh, demonstrably failing to take action uh, that one that the other side would you expect you to take uh, to defend yourself invites them to attack. Exactly right. I think in nations feel sometimes that they're like in a catch-22, where on one hand they need to take these actions to defend themselves, they want to have a, sh- a strong show of defensive might. Um, but that can be threatening under security dilemma logic. On the other hand, as you suggest, if they don't take defensive actions, if they don't establish a strong posture, it's inviting and uh, it's provocative a, weakness. Exactly. Think, yeah. Another nation might say, "Oh, we have an opportunity here to to seize the day and seize territory, um, whatever whatever it is." It, it varies through history, but nations, time and again, find themselves in this in this trap. So if I had to pick, if, if this were a multiple choice to take this to academia, if there were a multiple choice test that said today's cybersecurity world uh, illustrates either the maxim of provocative weakness or the security dilemma, I would have chosen provocative weakness. I mean, there, there's nobody who's doing a good job of protecting themselves and uh, Countries that have capabilities are having a field day with them. No doubt about that. And I think uh, what I get at maybe something a little bit deeper, a little bit more structural, and I'm interested in the question of is stability, is security even possible in cyberspace? Right. If top-tier defense 
uh, involves threatening other actors and provoking potentially escalation. So I look at how truly sophisticated nations, like our nation, your former employer, how they defend networks when it really counts. And one of the ways in which they do it is they break into other countries' networks, China, Russia, whatever it is, look around, understand the capabilities that are being developed, and use that in a very direct way to inform the defenses. Yeah, and that, that might that, be what top tier defense looks that, like. That is active defense in its most active form. Uh, the act, the term active defense is fraught in a lot of ways, but you can you can call it a lot of things. Uh, but certainly, it's it's um, it is provocative. I think, but or potentially you know, it's, it's provocative. It's actually hard to call it defense. I mean, it's it's offense used for defense, maybe. But uh, uh, if you say that offense includes breaking into your, all your adversaries' networks to figure out what they're doing, there's not really much left for offense to, to do. Uh, well, I guess I would I would wonder if everyone at, say, NSA would agree with that, because there are authorities through which NSA conducts intrusions to mm-hmm. improve the defensive posture, and there are very different authorities under which NSA conducts intrusions to set up attack capabilities. The problem is, if you're on the receiving end of it, you, can't you have no idea which is which. Right. And that's where the security dilemma applies very well Cyberspace. Are you familiar with Baker's Law? What is Baker's Law? Baker's Law is, uh, I've been trying for five years to popularize this. It is, it is simple. Um, our security sucks, but so does theirs. That <laughs> uh, nobody has good security, uh, and the fact that nobody has good security can be a tool to provide a kind of defense or at least a kind of discipline on attack because you can attribute and then punish people whose attacks went beyond the um, uh, the point that you were willing to tolerate. I will give you a, what we'll call Buchanan's corollary to Baker's Law, right. which is the United States has the nicest rocks, and we also live in the glassiest house. And I think one of the things that fits very well with your point is we try to take these nice rocket intrusion capabilities, take advantage of the fact that other nations don't have great security, and we use that to try to establish deterrence, try to aid our defense. Really, anything we can do, sure. we, we try to do with our intrusion capabilities. The question that follows for me is, is not a question against U.S. policy, but more a question of if everyone did this, if this becomes the norm for cybersecurity, what are the effects? So let, let me push back to... The fundamental um, thesis of the book, which, as I understand it, is uh, um, we are in a cybersecurity dilemma that is like the dilemma – well, I've, I'll ask you, like what other dilemma? Uh, and that that um, is a key way to understand what our actual policy and military options are. But um, where does the idea of a security dilemma Come from because it isn't it isn't perfectly obvious that uh, preparing for uh, you know that building the Maginot Line is going to provoke an attack. Uh, um, so why do we why has this become a popular theme in academia? Well, it's worth noting that not every defensive preparation yields a security dilemma. Right. In fact, um, there's two criteria that we use to determine what something, uh, whether it will lead a security dilemma or not. One is if it's obviously defensive, the marginal line, there's right. no capacity to take territory, there's no real risk of a security dilemma. Towers and walls don't move. On the other hand, uh, tanks might be useful defensively, but they also can take territory. So if there's some ambiguity about its potential for offense, that increases the risk right. of a security dilemma in any context. The second variable that's often talked about is what the general perception is of who has the advantage between offense and defense. If it's perceived that it's better to strike first, the security dilemma is more acute because you don't want to get caught flat-footed and give the other side the strike, the capacity to strike first. If it's perceived that it's better to strike second, uh, to counterpunch, as it were, then the security dilemma is less concerning because you can absorb the first blow and enjoy the advantages. This uh, sounds very much like uh, nuclear theory, uh, uh, and I... I I suspect that this is a theory that grows out of people thinking about uh, uh, nuclear exchanges. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that most of modern international relations grows out of the Cold War. Because that's the only thing you got paid for, <laughs> right, uh, for researching. Yeah. I, I think it made the Belfer Center's name. And, and what I try to do, though, is, is so that there are key differences between the cyber domain and the nuclear domain. Uh, well, I, th- I think the, the f- in the... It is certainly true that there's an inherent offensive advantage today in in cyber attacks. Uh, I am not at all persuaded that 
it's hard to tell the difference between defense and offense. You gave me an example of somebody who engages in offensive or at least uh, uh, offensive uh, intelligence collection as a mechanism for uh, defending themselves. Mm -hmm. But that strikes me as um, a tiny piece of our defensive approach. Um, It may be the most effective one, but we don't spend a lot of money or effort on that compared to all the money that we spend on forensics and firewalls and antivirus and uh, SIEM. And so all of that stuff is inherently defensive, isn't it? Absolutely. No doubt in my mind. And I think one of uh, my arguments is that if we could get our what I call baseline defenses, what you just described, our baseline defensive posture to the point where it was more effective, we could reduce reduce the need for defensive-minded intrusions. Yeah, but if pigs had wings, they'd fly. We, we can't. We don't. We, so, we, we spent 35 years trying and failed. So, so then I, I'm right there with you. Essentially that what, you're, what I argue, and I think if I understand you correctly, you agree, is that the the last piece of a defensive puzzle very often is an intrusion into the right. side's network. And that's where the security dilemma comes in. So the all right. So the the theory is that um, sort of like uh, fueling your missiles uh, uh, just in case uh, can be perceived as an offensive step. Uh, um, it, the um, effort to protect yourself and intrude into other people's networks uh, um, could be misread as uh, uh, preparations for a big offensive attack. And I certainly agree with you. uh, One of the things that is little explored, and I didn't see as much of this in in your book as I uh, would have expected, is just how much of an advantage uh, first strike is in cyber. Uh, I, I am convinced that it's an enormously uh, asymmetric approach because after the first serious launch of efforts, uh, um, the a state that's under attack has a, a limited uh, number of really tech-savvy people. Um, and now instead of using them all for preparing the offensive counter-strike, uh, they have to be used to get the president's computer back online uh, uh, or uh, the, um, uh, the missile uh, communication system. Uh, and so you're going to end up with a lot of people who are diverted away from preparing the counter-strike uh, to doing defense. Uh, plus, of course, you've got the psychological impact of, uh, of the loss of the, uh, that. Plus, you know, at least one of our adversaries uh, has a um, imaginal line of its own, and we don't, right? The, 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 the Chinese have built a big firewall around the country, and uh, uh, we pretended for a long time that that was really bad for them, but uh, it's turning out to be surprisingly good for them in many ways, controlling their population and being able to say, uh, that's the first thing we're going to cut off. We're going to... If, if 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 I were a Chinese cybersecurity strategist, I'd be saying, first we launch the attack that takes down everything we can take down in the United States, and a millisecond after that, every one of our connections to the internet blows. Um, and if you're planning for that on the other side, if you're a U.S. planner, you have to have attack capability inside China. Right. Uh, me and and where this leads, um, uh, at least from my point of view, is to um, uh, dead man triggers, right? Where you say, okay, I'm going to actually install all the tools to take down my uh, adversary's infrastructure, and they're going to be sitting there, and if they don't hear from me every 24 hours, they're just going to take it down because I will figure that uh, uh, what has happened is they've attacked me and then blown all the bridges. Yeah, if that is the policy, that that certainly invites some risk. I'm not uh, saying it is. I'm, I, you know, I, I I don't make policy anymore. I just uh, talk it. But uh, the, the the principle there, or the idea there, what the military and and the intelligence community sometimes call operational preparation of the environment, is really important because that OPE developing the attack capability in cyberspace often takes place in your adversaries' networks. You need to do the reconnaissance. Mm-hmm. You need to develop um, the, the malicious code you're going to use to carry out the attack. You need to understand how the systems work, how the systems break. So that offense, stuff that legitimately is offense, 
also takes place in the adversary's territory. Uh, and I, again, the challenge I think is if you're on the receiving end of that offense or if you're on the receiving end of an intrusion, you need to determine is this real no kidding offense? Is an attack coming? Is it some kind of deterrence, as you're suggesting, a dead man switch for a contingency? Or is it just defense that is pointy, to be sure, the tip of the spear, but genuinely defensive and no one wants a conflict? So here's, here's where I'm getting off your bus, I think. Um, if that's true, for God's sake, there's people in all our networks, and right. we're in all of theirs, uh, I hope. Uh, and... So where's the where's the security dilemma and the escalation building? None of that's actually happening, is it? I think before you you sort of spark into conflict, uh, oftentimes you need a, an outside event, and the security dilemmas throughout history have been triggered by a misinterpretation, an accident, um, something like that. So you're right, we haven't seen a conflict yet that started in cyberspace and went kinetic. Um, I do think, however, we take intrusions quite seriously. There certainly is heightened tensions now between the United States and Russia. You know, look what happened. There was a in Burlington, Vermont, right, there's this very minor internet of com- uh, indicator of compromise flare-up that for two days was consuming the news media. Uh, yeah, and, and, you, you know, know, that was I, – I, I can't help suspecting that that was hyped by the Obama administration as part of a campaign to embarrass the incoming administration. I have no idea. I have no idea who hyped what. I, I think certainly the suggestion is there that um, – uh, there's, there's a bias towards fear in, in, in cyberspace oh, they, when they, things you know, are discovered. Yes and no, right? Um, a lot of people paid no attention. It was, there was, there, it was hyped uh, uh, for sure. Uh, uh, but hyping it meant that, there, that it made page one instead mm-hmm. of not making the papers at all, which was probably the right approach. Uh, um, and uh, nobody – flipped out. Uh, uh, nobody called for strikes on Russia because of it. Uh, um, yeah, it, it added to, you know, people who thought that uh, the Russians were too big for their britches thought this was another example of it. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I, I just don't see the response being what it would be in a classic uh, escalation leads to, uh, you know, defense leads to other defense, which looks offensive, which leads to more defense, which looks offensive, and an escalation uh, ladder. I just don't see it. We, we, instead, you've got people sort of shrugging and saying, oh, God, the Russians are in another damn network. Yeah, certainly I, we haven't seen it thus far, and I don't, I don't in any means, I don't mean to pretend otherwise. Um, I would wonder if we saw Russians in American election infrastructure again, or there, there are places in which I could see um, people certainly calling for more escalation. And indeed, you know, we spent some time on Capitol Hill yesterday. There are plenty of folks calling for a much stronger pushback right. against Russian cyber activities. Now, the Obama administration. Um, chose not to do it in a lot of cases. And I think the critique that's offered of them, which may or may not be fair, is that they were too cautious and they, and they didn't, um, push back as hard as they should. And they would tell you, they wouldn't use security dilemma-esque language. They would tell you, I think, it was because fear of escalation and fear of where this would go, um, particularly prior to an election. So, um, I, I see that, 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 that there are some things you could do that you know could be done back to you because everybody's infrastructure is too weak to mm-hmm. defend. Uh, um, we had Tim Moore on here a while back and talked about the financial system. I just, just no doubt in my mind that determined hackers could crash the financial system in a, a very serious way. It might recover. There are a lot of reasons to think it would. Uh, but you could do real damage. Uh, and that's a reason why the U.S. government has never gone in and altered records in the banking bank accounts of uh, oligarchs uh, who richly deserve it. Uh, um, it. And it is certainly true that uh, the U.S. is, you know, uh, policymakers are painfully aware that they're in a glass house. Um, so they have tried to use these tools mainly against people they didn't think were good enough to strike back. And then the result of that is those those countries have gotten good enough to strike back. Uh, um, uh, but I just, you know, uh, if if what you are saying is there's a risk of serious escalation whenever offense beats defense, I think 
you're right. Um, the reason I suspect that people aren't thinking of it this way, that, that you don't have a runaway escalation, is that um, uh, so far it's not clear the consequences of cyber attacks are that serious. I mean, it's not they're they're clearly they're weapons of mass annoyance uh, and maybe weapons that could cause serious problems. But it, you know, the, the Russians attacked the Ukrainian grid and it was a real inconvenience. Uh, but the Ukrainians found a workaround. Uh, and uh, that actually seems to be at least as clear about cyber weapons up to now as that they are, um, that the offense always wins. The offense always wins, but the offense doesn't do as much harm as people thought. Certainly, I'm not someone who subscribes to the you know, sky is falling, cities are burning, planes are crashing vision of cyber war. Um, there's also no doubt in my mind that cyber capabilities continue to get better, continue to be more damaging. You mentioned the blackout in Ukraine. If you look at the, the investigators' reports there, it's reasonably clear whoever carried out that attack was not going all out. Whether it was testing, whether it was demonstration, um, cyber operations are a very difficult medium to use to signal. So I'm not sure they achieved the signaling they wanted, um, but it is reasonably clear at the technical particulars of that attack that was not all they could do. Um, and certainly if you look at you know, the, the money the United States is spending and the aspirational efforts that we're undertaking, which may or may not be successful, the goal is to, to bring the cyber capability um, to an area where it can be used less as an intelligence capability but also as a military capability uh, and with military effects. And if and when we see that, I think um, the cybersecurity dilemma certainly would be more acute uh, and perhaps in the visceral sense that you're, you're looking for here. One other point, and actually might harken back to your days in government, um, no doubt you know the the case Moonlight Maze and mm-hmm. and the the series of intrusions. Yeah, believe it or not, I was pre Moonlight Maze, or at least pre awareness <laughs> of Moonlight Maze. <laughs> well, uh, that that is in fact an important distinction, uh, given how long it went undetected. Um, but the Russians were in unclassified networks in that case, mm-hmm. um, and then Deputy Secretary of Defense and the others, when they were briefing this to Congress, say, you know, we're in the middle of a cyber war. Direct quote. So, what by today's standards is the most basic. You know, reconnaissance, espionage, unclassified network, in, in that time at least, because it's an intrusion into American networks, gets branded as cyber war. Not pre-war reconnaissance, which is what some right. said, but cyber war. And, and the sort of, we need to hit back, we need to punch back. So I don't think we're at that point now. I think you're right in that we've, we've certainly grown used to activities. The frog is seen. totally boiled. We, we, yeah. But, but I also think that there's, you know, if you look at, uh, what Ash Carter said, um, following a series of intrusions by the Russians in the Pentagon, he said, it can't be good for the Russians or anyone to be in our networks regardless of their motivation. Essentially, is we need to establish a, a principle here um, that we defend our networks, other folks stay out. Yeah, yeah I, I, easy to say, hard to do, right? The, again, the proof is in the pudding, and, and what actions is an administration willing to take to back that up? No doubt in my mind, the Obama administration uh, was cautious on this, and we can debate whether or not that was right. Uh, I think it's probably fair to say as a generalization, the, the current president is less cautious than Obama. Maybe he's also more pro-Russia. I don't know. Um, so, but- so far, he's been, he's been pretty <laughs> kind to Russia and China. Uh, yeah, so, so maybe, maybe that's how we'll skate now, through on this one. That 400-pound uh, hacker that I in, in bed in New Jersey, though, he's in deep trouble. Uh, yes, that, that is very true. Uh, we should say, uh, the attribution is clear enough to me that if it was a 400-pound hacker, it was a 400-pound Russian hacker. Yeah. And I, there's no doubt about that. But the, the consequences haven't been there. So it, it may be that um, you know the caution of Obama turns into the whatever it is we're in right now, and, and we don't see escalation. But what I'm trying to get at here, I think, is, is something that that's structural of how do we really think about cybersecurity and how do we think about this interplay between offense and defense so let me ask, in cybersecurity. Uh, 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 and we, we sort of coming to an end what are the policy if if somebody buys your theory mm-hmm. that we are in an unstable escalatory environment because of the risk or the advantages of the offense or uh because it's possible to misunderstand defensive measures uh, as offense um what are the 
conce- policy consequences? Uh, uh, should we just relax and enjoy the cyber war, or <laughs> is there something else that you think we should be doing? Well, there's there's two real paths you could go down, and it actually gets to a very fundamental question to which I don't have the answer. And if you believe stability in cyberspace is possible, you would take some actions to try to foster this stability, um, whatever it is, whether it's trying to improve your baseline defenses so you don't have to intrude as much, trying to signal to the other side that you don't have malicious intent. You know, the the more academic or historical parts of the book are all about how nations signal to the other side, we don't want conflict. We just want to defend ourselves and nothing more. And and that in some ways involves sacrifice or certainly cost. Um, so that's option one. And you would only do that if you believe that stability in cyberspace is possible. Right. My sense is that as a generalization, a lot of think tankers and, and those folks fall on option one. If stability is possible, we need to find a way to get to stability, norms, whatever it is. Option two is this is the Wild West. It will always be the Wild West. Um, someone from your former employer once said to me, look, if the Chinese hack us, shame on us. If we hack the Chinese, shame on the Chinese. And this is real politique, and the incentive is to go as hard as possible and to make sure you have complete dominance over the spectrum because it will be inherently unstable. And there's no point pretending otherwise. Um, and maybe in that environment, we learn to not worry as much about intrusions as you suggest. We learn to, if they're in a network, we don't escalate, we just kick them out. And I don't nearly have enough data to determine whether or not stability in cyberspace is possible or how you differentiate between these two courses of actions. The reason I like this framing is I think it tees up that choice well. And I think as the United States makes strategic decisions about cyberspace, we need to think seriously about are we pursuing stability here or are we doing something else? Do we think it's impossible? And I think as a generalization, you often find different parts of the U.S. government with different answers to that question. And that can lead to a disjointed strategy. Yeah, I uh, look, everybody would love to have good defense, but we've, I feel like we've tried that uh, and uh, uh, we'll keep at it, but it's not working. Uh, and uh, I think there are strategic reasons for thinking it's not possible. Um, and for that reason, we have to, we're going to end up with choice two. What I find interesting about that is you've got models that come out of binary or at most uh, three polar conflicts and uh, um, competitions. Um, what's particularly interesting about cyber is anyone can play. Uh, if you can get a gold medal Olympic team in some obscure support sport, um, then you can build a uh, perfectly good world-class hacking capability because the mechanisms are exactly the same. You just pick a bunch of fifth graders that have natural talent for what you're trying to uh, uh, win the world in, and then you move them to the capital and you make them spend 10 years doing nothing but the skill that you want them to learn. And at the end of the day, they're going to get gold medals in hacking or you know fencing, uh, and and that that's particularly works well with um, authoritarian regimes. It's not surprise that the mm-hmm. uh, North Koreans are getting good at this. Uh, if that's the case, we're in a war of all against all, or maybe all against us, because we're a logical intelligence target for everybody. Um, a, and so um, they, the idea that we can have a stable, carefully tended uh, uh, modus vivendi um, kind of Phrase when you imagine that we'd have to have it with fifty countries. I don't. I don't disagree at all. I mean, I think there are folks who would disagree. I don't want to spoil things for readers here. The last line of the book is: "There's no easy way out." Essentially, which is if we're gonna. If option one requires some very real sacrifices, it's very speculative, as you suggest. And option two, I think, re- requires some real difficulty or, or poses some real difficulty of how do you try to manage an ecosystem of, of 50 countries, wherever the number is, of nations with real capabilities all pointing them at each other for offensive and defensive purposes. That is a real mess to sort out. And as you suggest, it was hard enough in a bipolar Cold War environment. It gets a lot harder when you transition to a multipolar system or there's asymmetric factors, again, nice as rocks, but also the glassiest house. And all I do and, and you know, all uh, the cybersecurity dilemma can do as, a, as an idea is to tee up this question and, and to try to make it accessible um, for ultimately those who, who set policy and who set strategy. And that's the goal of this.
All right, Ben Buchanan, uh, we are looking at a great discussion of the uh, the book, which is called The Cybersecurity Dilemma, Hacking Trust and Fear Between Nations. Uh, um, I'm looking forward to you finally getting out of academia and helping <laughs> to solve some of these problems instead of admiring them, uh, but uh, uh, it was a great conversation, so thank you. My pleasure, Stuart. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks to Ben Buchanan, Ben Wittes, uh, our first uh, to Ben uh, episode uh, uh, and to Maury Shank and to Brian Egan. Now, this has been episode 169 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget if you have a guest interviewee and they sh- join us on the show, if you suggest one uh, and they join us on the show, we'll send you a highly coveted Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast mug. So send your suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, coming up, we've got uh, Rick, uh, Rick Legit. Uh, former uh, NSA Deputy Director, Jim Miller, President of Adaptive Strategies, who was co-chair of the Defense Science Board uh, uh, project on uh, deterrence in cyberspace, uh, and many others. Uh, We hope you'll join us for those uh, episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 